Hi there. You're listening to the Mind Ramp Podcast. I'm your host, Michael C. Patterson. In this podcast, we're continuing our discussion on psychedelic research with Albert Garcia Romeo. Al is a member of the Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences faculty at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. His research examines the effects of psychedelics in humans with a focus on psilocybin as an aid in the treatment of addiction. His current research interests include clinical applications of psychedelics, mindfulness, and altered states of consciousness and their underlying neurobiological mechanisms. And this is where we will focus our attention in this podcast. In our first podcast with Albert Garcia Romeo, we explored what a psychedelic trip feels like and what we experience when under the influence of these so-called mind-expanding drugs and how researchers at Johns Hopkins University manage a subject's psychedelic experience. Now, in this podcast, we will focus more on the neurobiological mechanisms. What do psychedelics do to our brains? What changes in the brain result in the altered states of consciousness that people experience when tripping? You know, this is not my primary area of expertise, but... I think the research over the last few years has been really interesting in, in giving us a sense of, you know, how this might be working. You know, I'd like to kind of start at the smallest level of, in a smallest unit here. So we'll talk about the, the brain cells and neurons themselves, which we have billions up here. And of course, we have even more connections between them. And, you know, those are really important to keeping our regular brain functioning and mental health uh, where, it need to, where they need to be. Um, and just from animal research over the last couple of years, we've seen that a single administration of a classic psychedelic like LSD or psilocybin will lead to new connections forming between the brain cells. Um, and not just anywhere, but in important areas like in the hippocampus or in the prefrontal cortex. You know, and we know that also in conditions like depression or Alzheimer's disease, um, you know, one of the features that we often see is a degradation of those connections. And so right. there's, um, you know, a neuronal atrophy. So the, you know, a healthy uh, sort of brain cell will have all these branches coming off of it. And as the brain ages, people get illnesses um, like Alzheimer's or depression, then you start to see sort of a shriveling uh, or degeneration of, of some of those connections. Uh, and that's part of, you know, one of the things that you can see uh, looking at, you know, the person's brain who's struggling with one of these conditions. And so to see the sort of opposite happening with mm -hmm. these new connections forming is very compelling. You know, it provides a, a beginning of a biological mechanism for why that could then lead to longer lasting changes. Mm -hmm. Would you guess that this is a basically a use it or lose it principle? My hypothesis about aging and the, the loss of dendrites and so on Yes, there are diseases and more mutations and so on, but also your self-inflicted ageism and people just stop doing things. You know, they stop thinking about as much. They uh, get settled in their ways or they feel, oh, I'm too old. I can't do that. So you're not getting the stimulation or you're so, as you get older, maybe that your ways of thinking are more fixed, which would be paralleled in the actual structure of the brain that the 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 networks and the pathways are kind of established and they don't depart too much. So then my hypothesis here would be that psychedelics kind of explode that 
and put more of the brain into use than is normally happening. So therefore the brain responds and the dendrites say, oh, new activity here. Well, okay, we, you know, we need to grow. Does that make any sense to you? I think intuitively that makes a lot of sense and it's very much in line with what we've seen. Uh, I'm actually putting together a presentation right now for American Psychiatric Association. Mm. And so one of the slides I have up um, is from my colleague, Fred, Dr. Fred Barrett here, um, specifically looking at brain networks and, and specific regions in the brain and their activity before and after a single high dose of psilocybin and showing that these brain networks, the amount of connections between the different areas in these networks um, and the amount of communication between these areas is increased after, um, and not just the day after, we're talking a week after, a month later, there's still you're still seeing a ripple effect, if you will, from right. that one dosing session. Um, and so, uh, you know, and other groups have been looking at this as well, noted earlier, the entropic brain, you know, this idea that um, if you have these very sort of well-worn pathways in the brain, which is um, how we perhaps think about ourselves in the world, they can become very rigid structures, sometimes perhaps over rigid. And by uh, introducing something like a high dose psychedelic, um, then that creates a little bit more of a variety of uh, pathways that are then available, at least temporarily. And I think specifically when you're providing supportive care um, with, uh, you know, a therapist or a counselor who's working with this individual, then you can really encourage them to continue to sort of engage in these new patterns. Um, and then break out of basically what had been these uh, rigid confines of perhaps constantly perseverating on negative thinking right. if you're in a depression or if you're um, dealing with the substance use disorder, always, you know, being fixated on I need to go get another drink or another drug right. or something. You can start to think about other things that might be, um, you know, alternatives that might be reinforcing. So psychedelics alter brains by influencing what is called brain plasticity, the brain's ability to grow new connections that expand the range and scope of our thinking. And importantly, as Al pointed out, this plasticity can also result in the death or decoupling of brain connections that are no longer helpful. But what is the agent in psychedelics that stimulates or retards plastic changes in the brain? You know, to be very um, pharmacological about it, uh, you know, the classic psychedelics, as as I define them anyways, and there's a little bit of controversy in the field, but it's mainly these drugs that act um, at the serotonin 2A receptor and specifically as agonists at that receptor. And that's their sort of primary mechanism of action. And we know that because when we um, put in other drugs that, that um, bind to that receptor and block that specific receptor, and then we give people these drugs like LSD or psilocybin, then a lot of the very pronounced psychoactive effects do not appear to happen. And so it seems that a lot of the what's happening with these drugs is mediated by the serotonin 2A receptor. And so then the classic psychedelics, as I understand them, you know, are um, these uh, substances like LSD, which was uh, synthesized in Switzerland by Dr. Albert Hoffman back in 1938. Psilocybin, which is found in about 200 species of mushrooms, grow all over the world. Um, mescaline, which is found in uh, different cacti, such as peyote and San Pedro. And dimethyltryptamine, um, DMT, which is uh, found in various plants, but also in animals' uh, brains. 
Um, and is also uh, the primary constituent of ayahuasca, which is a, a brew that's used in indigenous cultures in South America. Uh, so those those are some of the sort of classic psychedelics, but there's all sorts of other hallucinogens and, and psychedelics-like types of, of drugs out there. Um, so kind of, you know, people talk about psychedelic music or um, artwork, and so I think it's it's sort of bled out into culture more broadly than just those specific drugs. One of the things I learned just reading Michael Pollan's book is that the psychedelics are non-addictive, which I hadn't realized and seems an important thing for people to know. Again, you know, that's such a, a such an interesting point um, that uh, it really kind of goes back to this pharmacology because mm. serotonin 2A receptors rapidly up and down regulate when they're exposed to these types of drugs. And so um, what that means is that people build a very quick tolerance to them. So if you take a psychedelic over and over again, you stop noticing the effects. Oh, really? Uh, and then also there's not a withdrawal syndrome. So it's not something like an opioid, for instance, where right. when you're intoxicated, you feel good. When you're coming down, you don't feel so good. And that kind of um, creates this cycle of compulsive drug seeking, which can obviously lead into abuse or addiction. Right. Yeah, actually, I'm reading in some of the literature that people say, even when they're offered another psychedelic trip, they'll say, no, um, one is enough. It did the trick, as opposed to something like you're saying, like an opioid, where it seems to build in a craving for itself. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the classic kind of tests of addictive potential um, when we're doing that type of research with animals is if you train an animal to uh, administer this you know, substance to itself and then you kind of see if it will continue to self-administer the drug or not, or if it would, for instance, choose a drug over other reinforcing options such as food uh, and, you know, with drugs like cocaine or opioids or uh, alcohol, you We'll often see this, you know, pattern of self-administration, um, and with the classic psychedelics, it's not so cut and dry. Um, there, there may be animals that do come back, and just like with people, there are people who do um, use and sometimes perhaps abuse psychedelics. Right. Um, but the sort of general landscape is that uh, they're not going to be continually self-administering. Um, and same with people, you know, they'll often say, okay, I've, uh, one's enough or, you know, I don't necessarily want to be doing this every day or every week even. I mean, you mentioned the serotonin. It's a serotonin agonist. Is that the right way to say? Well, what, is, what does are, that mean? Uh, it basically just means that it's activating the receptor as opposed to um, trying to blocking it off. Uh, mm. And and there's different types of agonism, and some of these drugs are inverse agonists. Um, but it's all about a binding to a specific receptor, and then b once it's in there, what is it doing? Because sometimes it's sort of uh, blocking the receptor off from being active, and at other times it's um, actually kind of activating downstream pathways where. Um, if the receptor is activated, then it starts to trigger other second messenger systems um, that then go on to do other things that we're, you know, still trying to, uh, you know, parse apart to understand. Because again, this is part of, you know, what we've been so interested in and, and why these drugs seem to have persisting effects, um, not just when people are under the influence, but um, a week, a month or a year later, um, you can still often find some trace of coming back to that experience and, and feeling like there was something that was beneficial or transformative, um, you know, or that's lingering still. 
Psychedelics have been called mind-manifesting drugs. This means that the psychedelic drugs bring forth the contents of the mind. They are instruments. The drugs don't create the effects. They manifest existing aspects of the mind that's using them. You and your colleagues at, at Johns Hopkins University who are studying this, are you able to parse out as you, you talk to people what kind of personality is likely to have what kind of trip or what kind of mindsets uh, people bring to it that might move them in one direction or the other? Is there any correlation that you're finding? You know, there have been a little um, bits and pieces that we've been able to discern over, you know, years and years of research here. Um, but it's still, you know, I would say quite limited in terms of our understanding of how this is working or, you know, who this is, uh, what type of experience a, a person will have. So a couple of things we know, there's a, a sort of, I don't know if you want to call it a personality trait or a characteristic of a person to become absorbed in experience. Um, so for instance, you might be reading a novel and you know, mm. become very wrapped up in the narrative and almost kind of, you know, lost to the world around you or, you know, to be prone to daydreaming um, or to, you know, be uh, a person who might be sitting in nature and just, you know, notice the sounds and, and the smells and the sights um, mm. in a way that kind of uh, you get wrapped up in. Uh, more easily, perhaps, than other people who might not be able to let go into those experiences as much. Uh, so that uh, feature or that characteristic of absorption, uh, we know that people who tend to score higher on this uh, sort of absorption scale um, also tend to have more mystical type experiences under the influence of uh, psychedelics. So that's one thing that uh, we found um, over time, and that's been pretty reliable. Other things we found have been people who tend to um, score high on neuroticism. Uh, so these people might be what you call high strung, anxious. Um, they might be, you know, just in general, you know, have a lot that they worry about or a lot on their mind, uh, mm -hmm. sort of in general uh, terms. And, um, you know, oftentimes those people tend to have more challenging experiences. Uh, at least, you know, that's based on data that's been collected online and analyzed by my colleague here, Dr. Fred Barrett. But, you know, it makes sense intuitively, you know, people who might be more anxious in general can have some more of these challenging experiences. And, you know, some of the other work has been done around mindset. So, for instance, there is a group uh, working uh, overseas in Europe who did a nice study, and they found that people who had a more of a sense of surrender going into these experiences, they were having more pleasant, positive experiences than people who did not. So, mm. you know, if you're worried about, oh, I got to, you know, pay the bills tomorrow or, you know, I got to make sure to get the laundry out of the dryer or whatever, you know, whatever's on your mind. If you're not able to surrender because you're um, preoccupied, then that kind of mindset does not lend itself well to people having, you know, fun experiences or positive experiences. Um, and then the other thing that we've you know, kind of been able to isolate in terms of the setting is that um, a couple of things. One is, um, having a person, a sober sitter, a person who's sitting with you that you trust, that you know, not some, you know, kind of mm -hmm. stranger off the street who uh, is kind of with you throughout the experience, um, that that makes it safer and generally more positive of experience as well. Um, and in line with that, you know, having an environment that feels safe and comfortable is um, optimal. And so there's a group that's done a prolific amount of work with psilocybin uh, Franz Wallenbeider and his uh, group in Switzerland. And uh, one of the studies they did, which I found funny, but 
um, they looked at all of these different, it was a couple hundred people that they had put through um, psilocybin sessions. And the one thing they found in terms of environment that, you know, predicted a bad experience was when you stick somebody in a brain scanning machine, which is, you know, it's a, a little so, yeah. tube. Yeah. It's not, it's not uh, particularly aesthetically pleasing or relaxing. And so, you know, we tend to fashion our rooms to be kind of like a therapy uh, office or a living room. There's a big couch. People usually lay down on the couch for much of the day. There's a couple of um, comfortable chairs there where uh, you'll have a couple of monitors or therapists who will be sitting in there making sure that the person is safe and that everything is going uh, smoothly and try to put soft lighting, relaxing music or you know, music that's um, uh, it's meant to be emotionally evocative uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, artwork on the wall, things like um, landscapes, na- nature, um, and that type of thing. And so in that type of setting, we generally have pretty good outcomes. People tend to respond well to even the high doses. Let me go back to the default load network. My understanding of the default mode network, which was just kind of identified about maybe 25 years ago, is that there are certain regions of the brain that when we're not task oriented, when we're not doing something specifically where we're concentrating on a task and we just kind of relax and start daydreaming, those parts of the brain light up and they seem to be centered around self-reflection and our development of our sense of self and rehearsing how we're going to deal in with social situations and time travel. That's when we ruminate about the past or we get anxious about the future. And I think that's where we get our sense of self as the way, the way I understand it and psychedelics, meditation and so on are trying to get you out of the, default mode network and into a different mode, a different state of mind, if you will. Is that the way you understand it? So a lot of the initial narrative around the default mode network and psilocybin came from a very small study of 12 people who are in an MRI scanner uh-huh. and uh, who got psilocybin, which, you know, it's, it's uh, quite a small study, um, but there was obviously um, a very important landmark study and, and um, you know, it kind of led up into these narratives about um, default mode network being the sort of ego or sense of self Mm -hmm. and, you know, these task positive networks or these salience networks, these other networks, um, you know, and and how they interact. I I believe it's more complicated that the story that's unfolding as we get more information from more studies, larger samples, you know, is somewhat more complex than, than that. But, you know, again, intuitively is something there, um, particularly because we see these sense of ego dissolution being you know, subjectively reported by people. And when you see that, you're also seeing these changes in the connectivity between, for instance, hub regions of the default mode network, right. like the anterior cingulate and so forth. Has there been any, any any work on looking at psilocybin from a hemispheric point of view in terms of like, is there more activity in left hemisphere versus right hemisphere? Has that been looked at at all? Not to my knowledge. Uh, I mean, so f- actually, I shouldn't say that because there are certain parts certain regions like the left amygdala, right amygdala, um, you know, that uh, are important for uh, specific types of emotional regulation. Um, and we do see sometimes um, localized changes, for instance, in the left amygdala more so than in the right amygdala uh, after psilocybin administration. 
Um, but I think in general, the idea of looking at the hemispheric brain activity is not something that that's often done, but I, I could be wrong. Again, it's not like my, my um, right. primary areas. The reason I ask about hemispheric differences while on psychedelics is that there is credible evidence that the left and right hemispheres process information differently. The left hemisphere is more oriented towards language and the representation and interpretation of experience, while the right hemisphere is oriented towards direct, unfiltered experience of what we experience. Now, if this is true, I would expect psychedelics to suppress the left hemisphere and activate the right hemisphere. So I'd be very curious to find out. I'll have to keep searching uh, uh, for an answer to this question. Whatever the mechanisms, the effects of psychedelics are profound and seem to have the potential to be very beneficial. What? Uh, create such, a, I think, uh, a big interest in these uh, substances because it's unusual to see, you know, a person take a drug on one day right. and then, you know, many months or even more later to continue to have effects from it, especially good effects. Um, and so what we're seeing is at least indicative that there could be these long lasting uh, benefits. Um, and that's similar to what we've seen with uh, patients with major depression. Uh, so that's something else that uh, our group has published in the last couple of years. A small study in a group of uh, individuals with major depression who got two doses of psilocybin and, again, finding that those folks were uh, getting better, having reduced levels of, of depressed mood um, immediately afterwards, out to six months after, and even a year later, um, the majority of them were still having reduced depression. In addition to the duration you know, that it, it's the lasting effect. The fact that it's immediate is also pretty startling, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. Because um, most of the medications that we have, and, and this is a problem, particularly when people are in acute depression with perhaps suicidality, you know, the types of medications we have typically take some time, two weeks, four weeks, six mm -hmm. weeks before that people start to feel better. And so that's a long time for people to feel that, that crummy. Uh, and so <laughs> yeah. to be able to, to do something that has a rapid acting antidepressant effect is a, is a big breakthrough. And we've known for a little while now that ketamine, um, which is not exactly a classic psychedelic, but it's kind of a, a rela related type of drug, um, can have some of these similar rapid acting antidepressant effects, but they don't seem to last as long, mm -hmm. um, only for about a week or two. And so um, with psilocybin, seeing that for at least, you know, a number of people who go through these trials... Um, they're having the rapid acting antidepressant effects, and that's going on for some time. You know, it makes it an intriguing target for more research. Indeed, more research. MindRamp is interested in any intervention that promotes brain health, and psychedelics seem very promising on this front. Having a healthy brain is great, but just as important is what we do with that healthy brain. How do we use our minds to find peace and happiness? How do we use our minds to promote harmony over discord and divisiveness? It would be fascinating to see if we can use psychedelics to help us manage our minds in ways that, well, starve the bad wolves and feed the good ones. All right, well, thank you so much for listening and take care of that brain of yours. Manage that wonderful, mature mind. Take care of your neighbors. Take care of your family. 
and protect the planet that supports us all. Until next time. <laughs>